Don't clap like it was a mistake. We could do the, do the stupid movie thing where one person starts. You know, seeing that drives me nuts. I'm glad y'all didn't follow along. Okay. Today we're going to talk about grace. We're going to talk about love. And I thought to start off we would... Um, <laughs> there's a book I have that, that's just letters to God from children. And there's another thing that I've read. And, and it was uh, questions asked of uh, four to eight-year-olds. And so you get some really interesting responses well, these four to eight-year-olds were asked, what is love? So let me give you their definitions of love. Here's just a few that I, that I chose. When my grandmother got arthritis, by, this, by the way, this is Rebecca, age eight. When my grandmother got arthritis, she could, couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Pretty good. Carl, age five. This is one of my favorites. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and they smell each other. <laughs> Carl's got it going on now. Danny, age seven, says, Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. Oh. Uh, let's see. Emily, age eight. Love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. Notice this was the girl who wrote this one. Let me start over. Emily, age eight. Love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. My mommy and my daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. Uh, Nika, age six, says, If you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend you hate. Ooh, yeah. That's pretty good. I don't want to do it, but that's pretty good. Uh, Noel, age seven, says, Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, and then he wears it every day. <laughs> Noel's pretty smart. Chris, age seven, says, Love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he is handsomer than Brad Pitt. <laughs> Lauren, age five, says, I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. Karen, age seven, says, When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. I didn't understand that, and then I read that to Janie, and she said, well, you know, like on the cartoons, when little stars come out, you know, and I said, oh, okay, okay, I get it. Uh, Jessica, age eight, says, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it, but if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. Out of the mouths of babes comes incredible truth sometimes. But I want to add just a little bit to Jessica's. I don't think you should just say it. I think you need to show it. Because words without actions are empty. Love has this incredible power to move and motivate people, but it has to be more than words. It's got to be connected to actions. Love that is never demonstrated isn't really love at all. Many years ago, there was a group of theologians, which I don't want to go hang out with a bunch of theologians. i just got to be honest with you. But there were a bunch of these theologians... They had studied the, the Bible, they'd been to class, they'd been taught. So all these pastors and theologians, they're having this really serious conference. And uh, they're discussing the question, what is the one thing the church has to offer that the world can't get anywhere else? And they were going back and forth, and some guy would say this, and some guy would say this. C.S. Lewis happens to walk through the, the front, the, the, through the, the, the discussion, and he says, what are they talking about? And he said, they said, oh, well, we got this deep question. What is the one thing that the church has to offer that, that people can't get anywhere else on the face of the planet. And, and C.S. Lewis kind of shrugged, shrugged his shoulders and he said, that's easy, grace. End of the discussion. 
The one thing we have to offer that people can't get anywhere else on this planet is grace. If that is true, then maybe we better spend a little time understanding and defining grace. So if you have your listening guides, we're gonna, we've got a working definition for grace that we're going to use today. Grace could be actually described as a synonym of love. So here we go. Grace is love that pays a price. Love that pays a price. Grace always costs us something. So if you're looking at your life and you're wondering whether you've dispensed grace to someone else, if it costs you nothing, it's not grace. God calls us to be dispensers of grace. And so when we do, when we, when we show love, when, when we do something that costs us, we are being like Christ. And that's what God has called us to do. Now, salvation, we talk about this all the time, and especially on Easter Sunday morning. Salvation, that means being saved from your sins because we're all sinners. There's no discussion on that. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I've sinned, you've sinned, every person who's walked the face of the planet has sinned except Jesus. And salvation is free to me. All I have to do is ask for it. But don't ever think that salvation was cheap. We just saw a video of what it cost Jesus. And I thought it was interesting. Uh, Caleb leaned over to me in, in the course of the video and he asked me who the actor was. If you didn't know who the actor was, you didn't recognize him, did you? And I think that's probably a very good portrayal of Jesus. People could not recognize him. He'd been beaten within an inch of his life. Then he was forced on the cross. And you see that that grace, salvation, while it's free to you, it was not cheap. It cost Jesus everything. So grace pays a price. And if we're going along with the theme of that video, it pays a price to make things new. And that's what Jesus expects us to do. When we dispense grace, what we are supposed to do is take what we receive from Jesus and, and attempt to help someone else make their life better, to make new things in their life. That's what God has called us to do. So if that's what grace is, it's, it's paying a price to make things new, how do we do it? Well, there's three things I want you to get today. Three steps you and I can take to become dispensers of grace like Jesus. First step is stay very close to the cross. Stay very close to the cross. Uh, in, in England, there is something called the Charing Cross. If you do a Google search, which is what I did, a, a Google search on the Charing Cross, what you're going to discover is on Wikipedia, here's, here's the image that comes up. The cross is this kind of tower thing right here in the middle, and it was, it was dedicated by King Edward I in, in honor of his wife, um, his wife was Eleanor of Castile. And the place they put this was the hamlet. I didn't know what a hamlet was either, so I looked that up. A hamlet's a little settlement that doesn't have its own church. <laughs> it's, it's a little place that's, that's not incorporated. So this little hamlet was called Charing. Hence the name Charing Cross. Now here's the interesting thing about Charing Cross. If you look at a map of London, here comes the map of London. See the dot in the middle? Guess what's right there? Charing Cross. It is actually the point from which all distances in London and the entire United Kingdom are measured. So if you want to know how far to what? To the next town? It's how far to Charing Cross. This is a geographical center point for everyone. It was designed to be a place where people could get their bearings, the center, they would know where they were going from and where they were going to. This was designed to help you get where you were going or help you know 
from whence you came. There was a little girl in the city of London who was lost. A policeman found her, and through sobs, he finally got her name out of her. He asked her where she lived. She didn't know her address. He asked if she knew her phone number. She didn't know her phone number. And so kind of flabbergasted, the policeman said, What do you know? And all of a sudden, her face lit up, and she said, I know the cross. Show me the cross, and I can find my way home. So can you. If you stay close to the cross of Jesus Christ, you will find your purpose in life. Most people are wandering around not understanding why they were created. You were created to become like Christ. And if you try to put other things in your life that don't lead you towards Christ, you will find yourself empty. Some of us, it takes longer than others for us to recognize that fact. We do stupid thing after stupid thing, hoping for a different outcome. And that's one definition, definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and over and over and expecting a different outcome. You're going to get the same outcome, which is disappointment, emptiness, until you find the cross. And then your life will change because now you have purpose. You have a reason to get up in the morning because Jesus has called us to be like Him. So get a clear vision of the cross and you can find your way home. The reason we come to worship every week is to be reminded of the cross, to see the cross, to find our reason for living and existing so that we can live our lives just a little bit better. And then, after you, you get that idea of the cross, when you see the cross, what we're supposed to do is point out the cross to others out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. You see, I have to be reminded daily. The reason I read my Bible every day is I have to be reminded of my condition before I came to Christ. Do you know what, what the Bible describes my condition as? Dead in sin. A dead person doesn't need more fluids. <laughs> Dehydration is not the problem for a dead person. A dead person does not need to be warmed up. A dead person needs to be made alive. You see, it was my sins that put Jesus on the cross. Not my goodness saved me. Jesus' goodness saved me when I called out to Him and said, Take my place. And He willingly did that. Ephesians 2, 1-3 through 3 says it this way, it wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. So, to leave no doubt, all of us are in this condition without Christ. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose His temper and do away with the whole lot of us. When I'm aware of my sinfulness, when I see the cross, something happens in me that you will notice. The first thing that happens is, I don't worry a whole lot about your sin. I compare myself to a perfect Jesus Christ on the cross and I realize I'm a miserable failure. I don't judge you for your sin. I'm embarrassed by my own. I don't spend a lot of time looking around, casting stones at other people when I see the cross. I realize that it is grace that set me free. And it's grace that's going to set my friends free. Live close to the cross and people around you will notice grace coming from you. Ephesians 2, 4-7 through 7 says, Instead, in immense in mercy... And with an incredible love, He embraced us, He being Jesus. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on His own with no help from us. 
All right? So this is, you didn't do squat. I didn't do squat to become a follower of Christ, to be adopted into his family. He did it all. Then he picked us up and set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Now, God has us where he wants us, with all the time in this world and the next, to shower grace and kindness upon us in Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. The reason God saved us is so that he could show us off as trophies of his grace. And, and the people who are most um, grace-filled, the people who are most thankful for what God has done are the ones who are the worst sinners because the contrast is incredible. When you see where God brought them from, God raises us up as trophies to say, see my grace. And he's going to do this throughout all eternity in heaven. It starts now with us dispensing grace and showing what Christ has done, but it lasts forever for those who are followers of Christ, who are adopted into his family. That's what he wanted to do, was show his goodness, his mercy, and his grace through people getting right with God. So the first thing I have to do is I have to stay very close to the cross. The second thing that I have to do to become a grace-filled person, a grace-dispensing person, is to stay real close to grace-providing people. Grace-providing people. Now, why would you need to do this? Well, we all need some people who will love us and accept, accept us. We need them because there are other people in our lives who are like grace-impaired people who do not know how to extend grace. And instead, what they do is they give us ungrace. It's like they're grace suckers. And they suck the grace out of your life. And they rip you and they criticize you. Almost as if it's a sport an Olympic sport at which they're trying to win the gold medal, they will pull you down. Any, am I the only one who has ungrace people in my life? Am I the only one? Anybody else have people that are filled with ungrace who suck grace out of you? Now, don't go and tell them that they're suckers. <laughs> you suck. No, don't do that. But what I'm saying is the reality is some people are hurt. And if you'll remember this, hurt people hurt other people. Hurt people hurt people. But that doesn't mean it hurts you any less when they come and they pour ungrace on your life. Um, so I need people in my life who will dispense grace to me. People who dispense grace, they see the sin, they see how ugly I am on the inside, and instead of recoiling in horror, they draw near to me and they pour grace over my junk. Do you know any people like that? If you don't, I pity you. My wife is one of the most grace-filled people I've ever met. If you know her, you understand. I think that's why God put her with me, because He knew how much grace I needed. She will write me notes. She'll send me emails. She'll send me texts saying, I love you. I'm proud to be your wife. I see God in you. And I'm like, where? <laughs> At my lowest, she pours grace. And every one of us needs a, a few grace-filled people who will love us no matter what. And if you don't have those people... You need them because you're not going to make it in life without them. You need to come and plug into a small group. You need to plug in to, to celebrate recovery. You need some place where people will pour grace into your lives. Now, I have to caution you before we move on to the third one. Because if you do not do number one and you do not do number two, you need both. You need to be very close to the cross and you need people who are grace-filled people who will dispense grace into your life. If you do not do those two things, forget number three. And I'll explain why in just a minute. Number three is stay very close to sinful people. 
Anybody got an idea why you need to stay away from sinful people if you're not doing one and two? You will join what they are doing. Rather than being a thermostat, you know what a thermostat does? It controls the temperature in the room. You know what a thermometer does? It simply measures the temperature in the room. If you're not doing step one and two, you're going to be a thermometer. You're going to do whatever, you're going to reflect whatever the sinful people in your life are doing. You will get involved in their habits. But if you're doing one and two, instead of being a thermometer, you'll be a thermostat and you'll help dispense grace, which will heal some of those wounds, which will point someone towards Christ. And that's your purpose for being alive, for drawing breath on this planet. Stay very close to sinful people who need grace. And then the last part, and show them grace. Show them grace. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Saving is all His idea. In case you get any inkling that you did anything in order to become a child of God, read Ephesians chapter 2 over and over again. Here it is. Saving is all His idea, all His work. All we do is trust Him enough to let Him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that, that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join Him in the work He does, the good work He has, already, uh, he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. There's a phrase on your listening guide I want you to circle. It's join Him in the work He does. Third phrase from the end of that passage. Join Him in the work He does. All right, anybody recognize this? It's a soap dispenser. How much soap can this dispenser dispense? How much soap can this soap dish dispense? I don't know. How much can this dispense? How much is in it? It's empty. So how much dispensing is this soap dispenser going to do? None. Thank you. Okay, we're all on the same page. What was this soap dispenser created to do? Dispense soap. But if it's empty, how much soap dispensing is it going to do? None. All right. This represents a human being without Christ. The Bible describes this soap dispenser as dead, empty, incapable of performing its duty. It was created to dispense soap. But it needs something on the inside. According to the Bible, when you become adopted into God's family, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, if I can do this without making a mess, the Bible says the Holy Spirit fills you. Some of you are brand new Christians and you would say, I don't feel filled. Well, feelings don't have a lot to do with it. When I'm sick and puking, I don't feel like loving anybody but I'm committed to my wife. Now, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. What the Bible then says is, as you turn over control of your life to the Holy Spirit, then He enables you to take what He's given you and pour that out on others. Got to prime the pump. All right? You understand? When I allow Christ to come into my life, he fills me up as I turn my life over to Him. Then I'm enabled to dispense grace to, di to do the thing I was created to do. You're thinking, what's He going to do with it? I didn't think that through. Uh, 
anything to help you remember. Get around people that are lost and they don't know God and they would never even enter a church and point them to the cross. See, God says He wants us to join Him in the work He's doing. What was Christ doing on the cross? He was dying for our sins and the reason He did, it says, is to reconcile human beings with God. He became the bridge. And you have the only way, according to Jesus, according to the bridge, the only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ. So when you walk across that bridge, you become a member of His family. But God, if, if the only reason God was saving you was so that you could go to heaven, when you ask God to be the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life, He would take you immediately to heaven. Why in the world would He leave you here? So you can point other people to the cross. So you can grow to become more like Christ. So you can dispense grace. Because there are people in your line of work, wherever you are, whether you're a student, working, whatever you're doing, there are people you know that I may never meet, that God has put you in their lives. There's this huge divine intersection. The reason you're here, the reason God saved you, is so that you can dispense grace on that person and hope and hope by, by God's power that you can help them make things new when they turn their life over to God. The reason you're alive is to point other people to the cross so that there can be more people in heaven. And it's just this huge cycle. And when we dispense grace, amazing things happen. Get around lost people. Love them. Share your life with them. Share your heart with them. Share your faith with them. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. And the religious people, that was the worst thing they could think of to call Him. You, 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 you friend of sinners! And Jesus wasn't insulted. He wore it like a badge of honor. And it got him in trouble all the time. And i got to tell you, the worse the sinners are that walk in this building, the better I like my church. Because I think that's what Jesus came to create, was a place where messed up people admit we're messed up. And they get help to live life. Jesus is still looking for people who will dispense grace to others. I read a story years ago that, that I want to share with you. It's a true story. Christian writer is in Hawaii. He's from the East Coast, so think about how far that is to Hawaii and how messed up his internal clock is. So he's still on East Coast time as he's in Hawaii. So he would wake up at like 3 a.m. Hawaii time and be wide awake every day. So he went to this diner and he was having coffee. While he's sitting there, a group of women came in and sat down next to him. It was pretty apparent their profession. They were prostitutes, eight or nine of them there. As they were talking, one of them mentioned that it was her birthday the next day and the other one kind of scoffed like, what do you want me to do, have a party for you or something? It was a woman named Agnes and Agnes said, no, I don't expect that. Nobody has ever had a birthday party for me. They all left. So this Christian writer who overheard the conversation is sitting there, and he asked the guy behind the counter, he said, did they come in here every night? The counterman said, yeah. So this guy says, well, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to come back tomorrow, and I'd like to throw a birthday party for Agnes. So the guy behind the counter, he kind of smiled and said, okay. He called to his wife, who's in the back, and she came out of the back room, and the writer says she was all bright and smiling. She goes, that's wonderful. 
Agnes is one of those people who's really nice, but nobody ever does anything for her. Christian writer says, look, if it's okay with you, I'll, I'll be back here tomorrow uh, about 2.30 and I'll decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry, the name of the guy behind the counter. The birthday cake is my thing. I'll make the cake. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner with crepe paper decorations, a big piece of cardboard that said, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated that diner from one end to the other. I had it looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out because uh, out on, on... Well, I can't even read because I can't type. Uh, gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me, the writer says. At 3.30, 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swings open and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready. I was kind of the MC. When they came in, we all screamed, Happy Birthday! Never have I seen someone so flabbergasted, so stunned. Her mouth fell open, her legs buckled, her friend grabbed her by the arm to steady her. As she was led to sit on one of the stools, we were all singing Happy Birthday to her. When we came to the end of our singing, Happy Birthday, dear Agnes, Happy Birthday to you, her eyes moistened. And when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she just lost it and cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, Blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to blow them out. And after a few seconds, he did. Then he handed her the knife and said, Cut the cake, Agnes. We all want some cake. Agnes looked at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, Look, Harry, is it okay with you if I keep the cake for a little while? Is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and said, Sure, it's okay with me. If you want to keep the cake, keep it. Keep it. Take it home if you want to. Can I? She asked. Then looking at me, she said, I just lived down the street a couple of doors. I'll take the cake home and be right back. I promise. She took off, picked up the cake, carried it like it was the Holy Grail, and walked towards the door. And we just stood there motionless. When the door closed, the writer says, There was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, What do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems strange to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But at that moment, it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes for salvation. I prayed her life would be changed and God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at three in the morning. Harry waited a moment and he almost sneered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all love to join a church that throws birthday parties like that? at 3.30 in the morning. I believe that's the kind of church that Jesus came to create. I don't know where we got the other one, the one that's so stuffy, the one that's all pretend, the one that's I'm better than you because my clothes are better or I smell better or I know more words with more syllables than you. I don't know where that came from. And I honestly wonder if Jesus would be welcome in our churches today. I wonder if He were to show up if we'd even notice. A few
you ever read the New Testament, you'll find a Jesus that poured out grace on, on left-out people. He partied with publicans and sinners, and they loved Him. The lepers of society found someone who would eat with them, talk with them, hang out with them. That prostitute in Honolulu bumped into a Christian who was filled with grace, and you know what came out? Grace. I'm afraid when many of us get bumped into, grace is not what comes out. Grace changes us and it changes people around us. So my question to you is, who are you bringing to the party? There's someone in your neck of the woods that's just waiting for someone filled with grace to dispense a little grace on them. On your, uh, on your listening guide, there's a place, there's two, two places for you to sign things. The first space has a place for you to, to uh, write down two names of grace providers in your life, people who pour out grace in your life. And I'd like for you to write their names down because you need to tell them thank you for providing grace. My kids remind me of grace all the time because they are so willing to forgive me. It's like they're waiting for us to reconcile. If I, especially if I do something stupid, you know, they're waiting on me to come because I'm pretty good at that. But they're waiting for me to come into their rooms and I say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And they wrap their arms around me and say, yes! Like they couldn't wait for us to reconcile. Um, you need people like that. And write their names down and be sure this week that you, some of you need to call them immediately or text them. Text messaging is so quick and so easy. And if you don't have it on your phone, we have people in this service who can help you <laughs> with your cell phone service. But don't wait. If you wait, we'll be here next Sunday and I'll say... Did you do anything? And, and you'll say, oh, I forgot. And by the way, two weeks ago I told y'all that I was going to take some time off and spend time with... And some of you asked, Hannah Miller, that's one of the first questions she asked me. She said, and, and not, in, not in an accusing way at all, but she said, because she's, she's a grace-filled person. If you don't know Hannah, hang out with her because she's filled with grace. She said, have you been able to spend any time with your family this week like you said you were going to in church? And I said, yes! I was glad to say yes. I dated every one of my, my family members um, a week ago, and then yesterday I spent 10 hours with my family, and I was worn out by the time we got home. But if you wait, the point is if you wait, you'll forget. So don't wait to say thank you. Now, the next blank is two names of people that you know who need grace, and they need it now. They're about to go under if someone doesn't show them grace. And I want you to write their names down. Who do you know who needs grace, and don't call me and say, you need to go dispense grace because you're a professional grace dispenser. The reason you are in their circle is because God put you there to dispense grace. So write their names down. Who do you know that needs grace? And then I want to know, when are you going to show them grace? Take them to lunch. Um, call them. Write them a letter. Do something that shows them that you love them. And, and let me just say this. Everybody feels loved in a different way. Because I'm one of those people, you know, if you say nice words to me, I'm like a camel. I can go six weeks, six months, you know, on a couple of nice words. I, I, Wes is one of those people, he, he, his love language is actually words of affirmation, building him up. 
my, my love language is acts of service. So you can say you love me, but if you don't show me, then I don't feel loved. And the reason I bring this up is because this dude wore himself out this last week at the church. Not for me, not even for you, but for Jesus Christ. He single-handedly painted the whole stinking church, spray-painted the whole church, um, the first coat. And, and I, every night I'd go home and I'd say to my wife, Wes is awesome. You won't believe how much he did. And so I was built up, but now I'm building him up. But he's, he's feeling love because he's words of affirmation. Um, but here's the thing. You would never have known it if I hadn't shared that. Um, if you're going to be a grace dispenser, you have to become a student of the people that you're trying to dispense grace to. You've got to find out what shows how they feel love. I mean, just ask them. What, what is it that makes you feel appreciated? And then whatever they say. And if you're married, whatever your spouse complains about the most gives you a huge indication of what they need to feel love. Um, my wife brings food all the time to us so that we can work longer hours. My kids come out and work when they don't have to. Uh, all so that we can have a church that throws parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Now, I don't care what is in your life. I don't care what you're good at, what you're bad at. You can dispense grace. Because it was grace that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. It was grace that dwelt among us. Grace that healed the sick, cured the blind, and raised the dead. It was grace that partied with tax collectors. Grace that was called a friend of sinners. Grace that would not cast the first stone. It was grace that was nailed to a cross along with our sin and guilt. Grace that the tomb could not hold. Grace that now sits at the right hand of the Father. And grace that will one day come back for you and me. And when we've been there 10,000 years and every other word has been used up and worn out, we'll just be beginning to sing about grace. Let's pray together.